We're going to turn to hear from God's word. So if you grab your Bibles, and we are in 2 Samuel chapter 18, which is on page 323 of the church Bibles. Two Samuel chapter 18, starting at verse 1. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zariah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties were great that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair, while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I have just seen Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him. Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, if an, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, Protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And I, I have put my life in jeopardy, and nothing is hidden from the king. You would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Now Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hands of his enemies. You are not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. 
You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to a Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran off. Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. He said, Come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he is alone, he must have good news. And the runner came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another runner, and he called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. The king said, he must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, it seems to me that the first one runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. He's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hands against my lord, the king. The king asked, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant to me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. The king said, stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Joab was told, The king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning, because on that day the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house to the king and said, today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come upon you from your youth till now. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. This is God's word. Thanks, Anna. 
keep uh, 2 Samuel 18 open and we're going to work our way through it. You've got an outline as well so um, you can see where we're going. Let me pray. Father God, help us to see in this story the beauty and the richness of our salvation. Help us to see past the failings of this king to our perfect king so that we might trust him. Amen. Now, the trolley problem is what it's called. It's one of the most famous dilemmas in morality and ethics. Uh, Sometimes it's called the tram problem or the train problem, all the same thing, the trolley problem. Basically, it runs like this. I'm sure most of you will have heard it. You are standing by the points on the track, and you see a, a group of people oblivious to the fact that there is a runaway tram train hurtling down the tracks towards them. And if you pull the points then the, the tram will go on to the other fork and those people will be saved. But, but playing uh, with headphones in and you're unable to warn them on the other track is your own child. What do you do? Do you spare your child and see a large group of people, 30 of them killed? Or, or do you save the lives of 30 people by killing your own child? There are all sorts of variations um, on, the, on, on how it works. So uh, what if you don't like any of the people in the crowd? They were all horrible at school to you. Or uh, uh, what if um, it's not your child, it's uh, a random stranger is the other person? What if it's Adolf Hitler? Ooh, pretty obvious. <laughs> what if it's Adolf Hitler, but when he was a really little child? Ooh, I mean, it, there's, there's all sorts of variations, but it's basically the same thing. Do you save these people or do you save the person over there? the person you love usually. And in 2 Samuel 18, as we've just had read, David is basically facing his own version of the trolley problem. On the one hand, he's the king and he wants to save and preserve his kingdom. And he therefore must punish and destroy the wicked rebellion and the rebel who's leading it. But on the other hand, the rebel who is leading this rebellion is his son who he loves. And so he's desperate to show mercy and, and kindness and, and love. He both wants to save Absalom and save his kingdom. And he just can't. Now the dilemma is a hint. It's a shadow of the ultimate dilemma of all of history. The Bible teaches that God is holy and just and he has to punish sin. He's got to because he's good. The Bible also teaches that God loves and desires to save his children who he made. And God solves that intractable dilemma by becoming the man Christ Jesus and dying on the cross. So his justice is satisfied even as he lovingly saves his people. Okay, there you go. The center of the Christian faith. But the thing is, that truth that God saves us by dying in our, in our place as Christ Jesus on the cross... It's extraordinary, it's mind-blowing, but when you've heard it a few times, it becomes a bit, meh, yeah, I know I should get excited about it. I know it should move me that God would become a human and take my place on the cross, but yeah, I heard about it last week, to be honest, and the week before that, and the week before that, and we just get over familiar. And that's one of the reasons the Bible is full of other events which point to the cross, Because those events, they help us to see and to feel the cross afresh. These events like 2 Samuel 18, 
They enable us to understand the cross in a new way and perhaps to feel it more deeply too. And this matters because everything in Christianity hinges on the cross. Does God love you? (laughs) That's answered at the cross. Is God really good and actually worth serving? That's answered at the cross. Can I trust God ultimately? That's answered at the cross. And so unless you, you and I actually grasp the cross really clearly and fully and deeply, we will never understand God and respond rightly to him. And so my prayer, really, as we look at 2 Samuel 18, is that whether this is the first time you've ever heard about Jesus' death on the cross or the 5,000th, that we will all be struck afresh by the awesome nature of the salvation God offers every one of us here tonight if we'll only put our trust in Jesus. Okay, we're at the end of David's reign, so let's just do a quick story recap. We've followed him right through 1 and 2 Samuel. We've seen him as the, as the adolescent, no more than a boy really, who stepped out with courageous vigour when he heard God insulted by the giant soldier Goliath. We've seen him as the anointed king, but rejected by the king on the throne, Saul, and a fugitive Knowing God has said the kingdom is yours, but not enjoying any of the things God has promised him and instead being hunted and running through the wilderness, trusting God. We've seen him finally ascend to the throne and rule with justice and kindness and bring great blessing to the people of the kingdom. And then we've seen everything fall apart. As we saw those not big deal sins that he has just ignored, nurtured, allowed to continue, grow and grow and destroy him. And we've seen the impact that's had. Because of course, he is not just David. He is also a father and he is the king. And so as he ruins his own life with sin, it has ruined his family and it has ruined his people. And now in this final section that we're going to look at in 2 Samuel, we see the destruction that he's brought on his family and his kingdom collide as he's just had to flee from Jerusalem because of the brutal coup that has been launched by his own son, Absalom. Okay, let's dive into the story. 2 Samuel 18. The king who cannot protect his people, the king who cannot save his son, and the king who cannot mourn his loss or celebrate his victory. So we had last week, if you were here, we had the, um, the conflict of the counsellors, the war of the words between Ahithophel and Hushai as to what Absalom's going to do. And now comes the inevitable clash of arms between David's army and the army of Absalom. Now, Absalom has spent four years preparing his rebellion. So he's got a serious army. He's got plenty of support. This is a big battle. Verse 1. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruiah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march with you. Now the first two verses sound very positive. Hushai, David's secret agent, has, has done his job and has delayed things long enough in Jerusalem that David has been able to muster a pretty serious army and he deploys them in three divisions with commanders and says, right, I'm at your front. But the rest of the verses, where they show actually David is not the king he once was. 
And although the first two verses, it looks like David's in control and running the show, that's not the case at all. Verse three, but the men said, you must not go out. If we're forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care, but you're worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. The king answered, I'll do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all the men marched out in units of hundreds and thousands. The young warrior who killed Goliath is now an old man. Now once the army was quaking in fear and David had to step in front of them to take down the warrior that they were terrified by and couldn't handle. But now the army has to step forward and protect him because the youthful vigor and the courage is gone and now there is the weakness and the vulnerability of old age. David, you see here, he's not the one giving orders, leading the men. He's taking orders from the men. And he does then give instructions in verse five, but as we learn, they make absolutely no difference to what happens. The king commanded Joab, Abishai and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. Now, did you notice, it's, quite, it's a subtle point, and Hebrew is a subtle language, but how is he named? Verses one to two, he's David. But from then on, when he's being told what to do and giving commands that are going to be ignored, he's the king, the king, the king, the king. It's irony. Because he's weak, he's ineffective, he's not ruling, he's not even vaguely in control of what is going on here. One of the most uh, fundamental principles of the cosmos, speaking as a non-scientist, so don't, don't give me all your imperial things afterwards, um, but one of the most fundamental principles of the cosmos, as I understand it from looking on Wikipedia, is entropy. Entropy. Energy dissipates, strength fades, and bodies get tired and old, put bluntly. And we see plenty of things in this beginning and in the rest of the passage that we've seen before in David's reign, but all of them are are weaker and messier and, and just somehow worse than the early days. He's still wearing the crown. He still calls the troops out to battle. But now he's a liability rather than the leader. Now he obeys rather than commands. And now his instructions are just ignored. Now, All leaders get frail and weak and eventually die. That's why you shouldn't build all your hopes on human leaders. But nothing speeds up entropy like sin, if I can put it that way. See, David's natural weakness as an old man is made a thousand times worse by the impact of his sin. We've seen in the last few chapters that sin has real world consequences. The problem with sin is not just that it angers God. That is the biggest issue with sin. But it also weakens us. It corrupts us. It it messes up our judgment. It ruins our relationships and it causes harm to other people. Sin is miserable. And old age comes to everybody. And David is no longer the king who can protect his people. Secondly, the king who cannot save his son. Now, the focus of the chapter really is Absalom. Actually, he's really been the focus, the central character since chapter 13. But Joab, the commander of the army, is the decisive figure. He's ruthless, he's impetuous, and he's willing as ever to disobey David to get done what needs to be done. 
And the account of the battle that follows is actually very, very brief. Verse 6. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. It's a brutal affair, and the treacherous terrain proves as dangerous to the soldiers as their enemies. But what comes next is what's given the focus, and I cannot think of many battles in human history where the hairstyle of the commander has been decisive. But then there haven't been many military commanders who have been so obsessed with their L'Oreal-worthy luscious locks as young Absalom was. We learned in chapter 14, verse 26, he was a very handsome and a very vain man. And he was especially proud of his magnificent mane of hair. Elijah, you've got nothing on, on Absalom. He only got his hair cut once a year. And when he got it cut, there was over two kilos of hair came off his head. Extraordinary. Proverbs teaches pride before destruction. And that's precisely what happens here. Verse 9. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule. And as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair where the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Job, I've just seen Absalom hanging in an oak tree. His pride is his downfall, and he's quickly dispatched. It's interesting, actually. This, I mean, you've got to say, when, you know what, when you've seen what we've seen about Joab, this is a, he's a brave man who Joab said to the man who told him, what? You saw him. Why didn't you strike him to the ground there and then? I would have had to give you 10 shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, even if a 1,000 shekels of silver were weighed into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. If I put his life, and if I put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you'd have kept your distance from me. That's speaking truth to power. But Joab does what Joab does. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand, plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. He's shrewd as well as bloodthirsty Joab. He doesn't kill him on his own. He knows word will get back to David. You killed Absalom? I have no idea. There was a whole, (laughs) to be honest, there was a whole group of people who recognized the rebel has to die. And joined in the execution. I've no idea who actually struck the fatal blow, David. Now, the the narrator then draws a deliberate contrast in the final verses. Verse 17. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. For he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. The vanity of erecting a monument to yourself while you're a young man, contrasted with the ignominy and the shame of your body eventually just being dumped under a pile of rocks in the forest. It's reminiscent, actually, of the death of the cursed man, Achan, in Joshua 7, under a pile of rocks. Now, if you'll excuse the pun, it is easy to miss the wood for the trees in these verses. Between the tragic comedy of uh, Absalom sort of swinging under the branches from his hair uh, to provide target practice for Joab's men, and the brutality of Joab's execution, we can miss that what is happening here is actually justice being executed. 
Absalom has shown himself to be a murderer and a rapist and now a rebel seeking to destroy the kingdom. The means of his punishment is ungodly, shameful even, but the outcome is that the wicked rebel who has sought to destroy God's anointed is killed. Rebellion against God's rule meets wrathful justice. And it must do. It must do. Because God's rule is to ensure God's people are protected, provided for, and blessed. And if Absalom is not executed, his rebellion will succeed, and all God's people will suffer if a murderous rapist and a vain, proud bully like him takes the throne. Lastly, the king who cannot mourn his loss or celebrate his victory. Okay, the next scene uh, carries echoes of two earlier episodes, if you've been following with us, with messengers running to report the outcome of a battle. But as with everything else, this is just, it's a kind of worse version of what happened before. When David learned the deaths of Saul, and then the second of them, Abner, he responded with wisdom and justice and grace. This is very different. Uh, we'll join after the running race is finished. In, uh, dive in at verse 29. The king asked, is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz replied, I, I saw great confusion just as Job was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant. But I, I don't know what it was, sensible man. The king said, stand aside, wait here. So he steps aside. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. No concern for the battle or the troops who've protected him. No concern for the kingdom. Just the aching misery of a father whose son has died. The grief is just unrestrained and all-consuming. When Saul died, he composed a beautiful lament. Here he just sobs and sobs and sobs. He is the king. There is no greater power in the land than him. And he cannot do the one thing he really wants to do and save his son. Now given the, uh, the wild success of Barbie, which I haven't seen yet or ever, um, you just know they're already talking about sequels. Hollywood doesn't miss that opportunity. Uh, I mean, it's, I don't know what the Barbie 2 will be, the patriarchy strikes back, but um, uh, you, know, you just know there's going to be a trilogy because there's money to be made. Um, whether it will rank amongst the great trilogies of uh, cinematic history, though, I am slightly more dubious. Uh, I mean, what would you, votes for the greatest trilogy ever? Star Wars, Godfather. See, I think God, it's hard to look past the Godfather. Slightly different movie genre to Barbie, let's be honest. But utterly brilliant. Now, I know it's old, way too old for most of you to have seen. Um, it has no CGI at all. Um, it's worth giving a try. But the Godfather, it, uh, it tracks the, the Corleone mafia family. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary three films. And in particular, the rise of Michael Corleone. And by the end of Godfather 3, 
he has destroyed every rival. All his internal rivals within the family have been bumped off. All the people who've threatened their rule have been killed. All the police and politicians who might stop them have been bought off. He stands on top of the world. But the movie ends with him sitting, slumped, miserable, alone. And he just dies. Because the one thing that matters to him in the world, the one person he loves in the world, his daughter Mary, he cannot keep safe. And she's killed. And so for all his power, for all his might, for all his victories, for all that he's proved untouchable, he dies a bitter, lonely, broken old man. It's one of the most painful endings in cinema in many ways. And it is what David is like here. And again, Joab takes charge. And he delivers what is quite an astonishing rebuke to his king, who is grief-stricken. We'll jump in at verse 5 of of chapter 19. Then Joab went into the house of the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You've made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see you'd be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from from your youth until now. Yowzers. I'm not sure if it's a threat of rebellion or just a bit of real politic. This will happen. You just better wise up, David. But David does what he must. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told, the king sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. The Israelites, meanwhile, had fled to their homes. But it's hardly a ticker tape parade, really, is it? The king is there, waving at the victorious troops. But everyone knows his heart isn't in it. His heart's buried under a pile of rocks in the forest. Absalom the rebel must die or the kingdom will fall. Absalom, the son, must live or the king will be broken. And so the very victory which saves his crown and his life breaks his heart. He is unable to mourn as he wants and incapable of truly celebrating. And the remainder of chapters 19 and 20 show David returning to Jerusalem. But in keeping with what we see here, it's a weaker David and a more messy return. There's there's discontent and and division and, and Justice is delayed or or fudged, and his kingdom would just never be what once it was. Okay. Pause. What do we learn for ourselves here? Now, as I said at the start, this account points beyond itself to something greater. The first half of his reign, David points to Jesus as he fights to protect his people and through his, his kindness, his justice and his love for God. And we look at David in the first half and we should say, wow, what a warrior, what a man, what a king. And Jesus is even better. He is braver, he is kinder, he is wiser. How much more should we trust Jesus if he's, if he's like David but better? In the second half of his reign, David points to Jesus in a different way, in his failure 
and his misery, we see a contrast. And we thank God that our King Jesus is nothing like the David we see in chapters 13 to 20. And in many ways, there's nowhere we should be more glad Jesus is not like David than in chapter 18. Because in chapter 18, David could not save the kingdom and his son. He couldn't execute justice on the rebel and show love and kindness. And Christians, we get so used to hearing about God saving us at the cross that we forget how impossible a dilemma it was. The same dilemma that David faced. See, God genuinely is committed to establishing his kingdom, a place where people will be safe and can flourish, a place where we are neither ruled over nor invaded by psychopathic tyrants like Putin, a place where newborn babies are not killed by nurses, a place where relationships do not break down, a place where no one's even heard of cancer or Alzheimer's or even man flu, a place where young people look at the future and it feels bright and full of hope and meaning. And so God will shut out everything and anything that might bring misery, pain, perversion, decay into that kingdom. God has also committed that he loves his children, those he created in his image. And on the face of it, You can't solve that problem. God can't both uphold justice by punishing wickedness and keeping it out of his kingdom, while at the same time showing love to his children. Because you see, we are part of the problem. We're not only innocent sufferers, we are also sinners. And our resistance, your resistance, my resistance to God's rule contributes to the misery and chaos of our world. We are both wicked rebels and loved children. You and I are Absalom. We are both wicked rebels and loved children. And there is no way that God can allow us to remain in his kingdom if it is to be a place of flourishing for all people. Because our selfishness, our petty pride, our vindictiveness, our greed, our gossip, our perversions, our desire that I will be in control and the world will revolve around me, those things bring misery to others. We must go. God faces a dilemma just as David did, but thankfully God is not like David at this point. For one, God is triune. Okay, why are we going there? where he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Father, he rules with justice and punishes all that is wicked. As Son, he takes that punishment upon himself, becoming a human being and going to the cross to absorb that justice. And as Spirit, he is at work to transform the hearts of those who turn to him so that in the new creation, we won't bring decay and misery and despair to others. God is not like David, wonderfully. David cried in verse 33, if only I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And what he couldn't do, God could do. Die in our place. David's aching, forlorn longing is fulfilled as Jesus cries out, God forsaken, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? As he took our place and died instead of you and me. And so at the cross, God satisfies justice 
and forgives his wicked children. God preserves the purity and peace of his kingdom and welcomes and shows mercy to sinners like us. Paul celebrates in Romans 3 that because God saves through Jesus' death on the cross, he is just and the one who justifies the ungodly. At the cross, wrath and mercy meet. Love and justice kiss together and you and I are saved. All to the glory of God. As we close, let me press uh, in further to the contrast between David and God. Rejoice in the God who is, who is not conflicted towards you. Unlike David, God is not conflicted. He is never torn between two desires. There's no, there's no messy compromise and conflict and uh, negotiation involved in our salvation. It's not where the triumph of God's justice over his, uh, the, the triumph of God's love and the suppression of his justice. It is the triumph of both his justice and his love. Both are fulfilled. Now throughout this section, David has been conflicted. He wants to love and, and receive Absalom, but he also wants to uphold justice. He couldn't bring himself to execute Absalom when he murdered Amnon, his other son, in chapter 13. But neither could he have Absalom live in Jerusalem with him. He was, he was just torn and ends up doing nothing. And he's still torn as he sends out his army to kill Absalom's soldiers, but, but begs them not to touch Absalom. God is not torn when it comes to you. If you trust in Jesus, you don't have to worry that God is always in two minds about you, looking at you and thinking, my justice tells me I really should punish you and let's be honest you really have been asking for it lately but 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 my love for you means I'll just ignore my justice for now if you trust in Jesus God is not in conflict God is never in conflict inside himself he's united in his desire for your salvation no desire was suppressed no internal conflict rages And so you never need to fear that God will have a change of heart and decide in the end, you know what, actually, I'm now feeling more in a justice mood and I just think it's enough. You're condemned. See, there is no part of God which is against you if you trust in Jesus. His holiness, his love, his justice, his mercy, all of God is united in all that God does. And so in his desire to save and forgive you, all of God is there. Our guilty, shame-ridden consciences, they sometimes have this lurking fear that God's desire for justice might, might one day outweigh, overpower his desire to love. Now his desire for justice was satisfied at the cross. And that desire for justice is a desire that we be saved justly. All of God accepts all of you in Christ. So press in. Grasp more deeply this God who at his very heart loves you. Grasp this and our hearts will be moved with love for God. See the beauty of the difference between God and David. See the picture of the cross we have in 2 Samuel 18. See it. 
trust it, believe it, and we will be lost in wonder, love, and praise. Let me pray. Our Lord God, we thank you and praise you for the many pictures your word gives us to help us understand the salvation you have poured upon us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you that in Christ you saved us justly. There was no battle between justice and love. Both were poured out at the cross. Thank you that you are not conflicted towards us. That your desires are all in one direction for your glory and the salvation of your people. Help us to be filled with awe and wonder and love that we have a God who is nothing like us and a God we can trust will always love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.